G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Even though most of you may not be a Judas through and through, most of us, the Judas principle is always working. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill. I'm glad you've joined me. Are you awake? I mean, really awake. Pastor Jeff is continuing in the Awake series to help us wake up in certain areas of our life and faith. In this episode, we're in Mark 14, where Jesus reveals to the disciples, one will betray me. Pastor Jeff is helping us to wake up to what this passage is saying for our lives today. Now, we may not all be Judases, but for most of us, the Judas principle is always at work. Let's see what he means by this. Here's Pastor Jeff on Today with Jeff Vines. What we're doing is we're taking a look at the final events, the final days of Jesus' life. And you know how last words are important. Last activities are also crucial. The last happenings of Jesus' life while he was still on earth in hopes that we could see something that is important and would have the courage to make a course correction. So these last events really hone in on the type of people we're supposed to be. So we're hoping that if we're asleep in some area, that we'll wake up. And so in Mark chapter 14, we continue through the gospel of Mark. I'm in verse 16 of chapter 14. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then verse 27, Jesus continues addressing the disciples when he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but I have risen and I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, please listen. There is no way I can cover everything in this narrative. That's why we're gonna take two weeks to do it. But in this first weekend, there is this overarching truth that you have to understand. You have to wake up to it. You can't be asleep concerning this overarching truth in the story of Judas and the betrayal. 
It may not determine where you spend eternity, but to a great degree, it will express to you the road you're presently on in hopes that if you have a desperate need for course correction, you will do exactly that. And the truth we're going to look at is a simple one. It's called the Judas Principle. What is the Judas Principle? Usually when we talk about Judas, we associate his life with one word. What is it? Betray or betrayal. And I don't know if you know this, but it's actually an accountant's word. It means to hand over or to sell. It's like taking a look at non-performing stock and saying, I got to dump this and I got to dump it quickly. When your financial advisor calls you and tells you, look, this investment, it's not performing well. Get rid of it and get rid of it now. You're appreciative because you don't like investing in something that has a poor return. So Jesus, in giving his final instructions in that Passover room, drops the bomb on the disciples. He literally does. And it would have felt like that to them when he says, one of you will betray me. What he's basically saying, if you understand the word betray, he's saying one of you is going to realize somewhere along the way that I'm not who you thought I was, and I'm not going to do what you thought I was going to do, and you're going to sell me off like non-performing stock. You with me? Now, the question is, when Jesus walks into the room, why is he so ambiguous? Why does he say one of you is going to betray me, but doesn't tell us who? He actually says in verse 20, It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Well, the problem with that is they're all dipping bread into the bowl with him because they're all celebrating the Passover. Why so ambiguous? If you know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll remember when the white witch of Narnia walks into the room and says, you have a traitor in your midst, and there he is. She identifies him. When Nathan comes in to confront King David, he doesn't come into the king's court and say, one of you's committed adultery. I'm not saying who, but one of you. No, he tells King David a story and then he says, you are that man. But Jesus, when he comes in to the disciples, says, one of you will betray me, but he doesn't say who, why? Now, I think there's an overarching reason that we're gonna get to later. But for now, I think one of the present reasons is because he simply wants every single disciple around the table to take a good look into their own heart. And I think he wants you and me, when we read this, to take a good look into ours. Because even though most of you may not be a Judas through and through. Most of us, the Judas principle is always working. The Judas principle goes something like this. We we always have these tendencies. It goes like this. Betrayal means to serve or follow someone as long as it benefits you. But as soon as it costs you something, you'll write them off. You'll sell them off like a non-performing stock. Let's say you have two people, and it's important that we start on this foundation. We have to understand this. This is what the text is teaching. You have two people, and let's say they both, on the outside, go to church, sing songs of worship, may even listen to to worship music in the car. Maybe they serve at God's pantry. Uh, They speak a good language. They even think that there's good moral values in the Christian message. So you've got two people here. Externally, they look the same, but internally, there's an extremely, entirely different motivation at work. For instance, the first person, they worship and they read the word and they're in accountability groups and they serve at God's pantry or whatever it is they want to do, but they do so because they really do believe Jesus' way is the best way. J.T. Fisher, a respected counselor and psychologist, once wrote these words. He said, everything you need for emotional and psychological health, wealth and vitality can be found in Jesus' words during the Sermon on the Mount. 
So a person hears that and says, you know what? I think Jesus' way of living will lead to a successful life. So my motivation is monetary gain. So I'm gonna give because the Bible tells me if I give, it'll be given to me and I can build bigger barns. I'm gonna sow generously because I wanna experience a great harvest. I'm even gonna forgive people when they offend me because I do want good emotional health and soul care. And the Bible tells me if I forgive, that's what I'll get. This Jesus is a great teacher, great motivator, guru, I'm gonna follow him. So I'm speaking in Australia when we did ministry in New Zealand. I'm invited over to Brisbane and I'm speaking at a rather large church and they billet me with a young family in their 40s, three kids. They pick me up at the airport, take me to their home. It's about a 20 minute journey. And it didn't take me very long to figure out this was a couple who was in financial duress. They were stressed. And yet they're giving, they're taking care of me, taking me from the airport, allowing me to stay with them. We have a conversation that night about the financial stress they're in. And I walk into my bedroom that night, unpack my suitcase and notice there's a large envelope of cash on the bed with my name on it. So I opened it up and I thought, wow. In fact, when I opened it up, I thought, this is what I was gonna do for them, not a large amount. Robin and I didn't have much then, but I was gonna leave something. Well, this was 10 times what I thought I might leave them. So I go back into the living room and I say, hey, I found this envelope, thank you, but if you're in such financial duress, distress, why are, you, why are you giving away this money? Because I thought about giving you some money. And they said, no, don't do that. I said, why? And they said, because we are investing. And they believed that, they had been taught by someone that if for every dollar they gave me, God would give them $10 in return. So because they were in financial need, they were giving me money in hopes to get 10 times back. You with me? So I looked at them and I was, I'm cheeky now, I was cheeky then. So I looked at them and I said, so you gave me the money, not because you were concerned that I needed it. You didn't give me the money, you gave yourself the money. You see? And I explained to them, because they were in their 40s, I was in my late 20s at the time, and I said, look, you, do you realize how much bad theology is built on this quid pro quo relationship with God? You've invoked a self-imposed contract. You've said to God, if I do this, God, you have to do this. So there are some people who do what they do, and they're actually good things, but they do it for them. They do it to earn a profit. So to them, God is a utility to be used for your own purpose. Then you've got the second person who does the same external things. They go to the Bible study, they praise and worship, they even listen to praise music, they even teach their kids good moral principles of scripture. But the motivation is entirely different. They do it because they truly believe Jesus is the savior of the world. They really do it because they're so grateful to God for everything that God has given them. I love what Pastor Chris says sometimes in our meetings. He'll say, you know, if God never did another thing for us, he's done enough already. The eternal summer, dwelling in the sanctuary. This person says, I'll give, but I'll give so that I might bless others. And I'll sow generously because I want to show the world the love of Jesus. And that'll be blessing enough for me that God has used me for his purpose, eternal purposes. Now, on the surface, and make sure you stay with me here. On the surface, they look the same, but they're very different. And the only way you're going to find out the difference in their lives is when trouble comes, when things go bad, then you'll know who they really are. And where the disciples are concerned, things are about to get really bad. Now think about it. They've come in the Bethany, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
And the disciples are probably thinking before this, man, we're part of the incoming administration. We're in the in crowd. We're set for the rest of our lives, man. When Jesus takes over, he's going to put us on his administration and we'll have everything that we want. In fact, they were so hopeful for this new administration that Matthew records an event where James and John get their mommy involved. In Matthew 20, verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now she's not talking about the heavenly kingdom. She thinks there's an earthly kingdom. She's politicking for vice president and head of state. (laughs) And now Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem, declared to be the son of God and the righteous or religious leaders rather know with certainty, we got to kill this guy. And the disciples would have felt that too, because they're in the inner circle. And they would have said to themselves, this is not going so well. Instead of on the road to recognition, it feels like we're on the road to perdition. This is not what we signed up for. We could die. I mean, before it was romantic and exciting. Now we could lose our lives. It may cost us everything. And then Jesus comes into the room about the time they're thinking that, looks at them and says, one of you will betray me. And in the text, they neither confirm or deny. They say, is it I? Now, in the original language, it's an emphatic followed by uncertainty. So it's like saying this, it's not me, is it? Linguistically and emotionally, this is a remarkably ambivalent statement. Not me, right? This is the Judas principle. Another story that will help us understand this is the story of Job. Most of you are familiar with Job, 42 chapters of incredible philosophy of life and theology and argumentation and apologetics and theodicy. But what is the basic point of the book? This one simple question, does Job serve God for nothing? Job's having a great life. He's been very faithful. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And Satan responds by saying, yeah, sure there's none like him. You've given him everything. I mean, my goodness, look at all his wealth. Of course he loves you. Who wouldn't? Now, I've often wondered why there's not a pause in the text because if you know anything about the fall of Satan, if Isaiah chapter 14 is an accurate reflection of Satan's fall, then we're told that not only was Satan an angel, he was a beautiful angel. Above all the other angels, he was called the morning star. So you'd think God would say, well, you had everything and you rebelled. But Satan says, no. Job may look like he's serving you, But in reality, he's just using you. You are means to his ends. And here's how I can prove it to you. By the way, you can can hear Satan's language in chapters one and two. Look at all those herds and sheep and houses and sons and daughters. It looks like Bonanza out there, right? Of course he serves you. You're like Santa Claus. He doesn't serve you to please you. He serves you to please himself. But you let things go bad in his life, God, and he'll throw you away, man. He'll sell you just like a broker sells non-performing stock. He'll be gone in a flash. Every time you go through a Job-top experience, a period in your life when things go really bad, you discover who you are. And I think in a real way, God is saying, now we'll see. We'll see. Does he or she understand everything that I've done, am doing, and will do for them in the future? Or am I really just a means to their ends? I want to be careful here. 
because I don't want to minimalize the trials that we face. I mean, they're very real. They're very painful. I'm simply saying when a marriage breaks up, when a child goes astray, when there's a loss of a loved one, a child or a grandchild, when the rent can't be paid, when the promotion is history, when COVID-19 invades, your response in that moment does not determine who you are. Your response reveals who you really are. And sometimes it's two people in the same family and different responses. When Robin and I lived in New Zealand, there was a lovely young couple from England, part of the church. They had two beautiful sons. And then a third came along. His name was Oliver. Everything was going well with Oliver until he had his inoculations. And he was one of those one in a million that things did not go well. So at age five, mentally he stopped developing, but physically he continued to grow. Now, if you've ever been a mother in a situation like this, you know that it is all consuming. The care, imagine, imagine a 13-year-old boy with the mental aptitude of a five-year-old. I saw her lean into her relationship with Jesus, lean into her church, lean into the scripture and to prayer, believing that the only thing that could sustain her would be through the power of God in Christ. We saw her, Oliver became a hero at church because we all loved him so much. While that was her response, her husband responded totally differently. When she needed him most, he bailed, left the family, moved out. So now she's got no income and she's got three kids, one with special needs to take care of. He blamed God. He ran away from God, ran away from the church. She leans in, he runs away and still to this day is not recovered. And that's 25 years ago. In the same family, Jesus looks around the table and he's asking the disciples the same thing he asked you and me. Did you get into this relationship to serve me? Or did you get into it so that I might serve you and help you get the things that you really want? Every time I read this story, I'm reminded of the two different paradigms. And although we repeat it often, it's so easy to forget. Religion says, obey, do all the things you should do. God will accept you. And then you can say to God, hey, I did it. Now you owe me a good life. But Christianity, Jesus taught you are accepted on the basis of infinite grace. Infinite grace. You are accepted. Not because of your good or what you've done. He loves you so much. He offers you the gift of grace. All of those who take it, all of those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He offers that to you as a gift. Therefore, because you know that there's nothing greater he could ever do for you than what he's already done, you follow him and you obey him and you realize you owe him your life. That's, that's Jesus. The Judas principle. Now, have you recognized something yet? The Judas principle is in all of us. <laughs> no one's immune. It's the part of us that still operates on the premise, the religious premise that basically says this. If I do this, and I'm a good boy or a good girl, then God owes me a good life. And so when our life falls apart, we run. I have another friend of mine that was a pastor and missionary in Africa. He was in his late 20s when I was just beginning my journey. And I really looked up to him. I would listen to messages that he would preach at conferences and conventions. And he was a golfer, so I kind of looked up to him for that reason too. You know, he's a good golfer and he's a great man of God, a great preacher. 
About 10 or 12 years ago, his lovely wife, and I mean, he married very well. She was a jewel. She loved Jesus. And she died. She got cancer. And it was a, it was a rather slow death, but she finally passed away. After she passed away, it was a matter of weeks, not even months, that he began to live this immoral lifestyle, and there was no shame. He would post his escapades on Facebook. His parents would read it, and I'm thinking, wow, if you're going to live that way, wouldn't there be some sense of guilt or shame? And after his wife died, it appeared as if he had never known God. And I had to start thinking, you know, I had to really start doing some... Well, some calculation here. And I started thinking, well, maybe he's just angry with God over the death of his wife and he's lashing out. Or maybe he never really knew God and she carried him by her faith. That happens a lot in relationships. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, it's right here. It's the Judas principle that dwells in all of us. Sometimes our faith in following Jesus is contingent on things going our way. And if they don't, I'm out. Is that not what Jesus meant in Luke 8 when he said, those on rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. What's he saying? You like the message of the gospel. You might even take it in, but it doesn't go down very deep. Why? Because when your life falls apart, you bolt. Can I tell you something? Every disciple around that table other than Judas heard Jesus' message and got it. Did you know that? In 44 AD, James was bound in chains and led up to a place of execution. And they basically asked James, look, if you recant your faith and trust in Jesus, we'll spare your life. He said, I can't do that. And they wrote down the sword of injustice. Philip, 10 years later, he was given 40 lashes with a leather rope containing those chips of bone that are designed to dig into the skin and extract flesh. And then they took him out and nailed him to an old wooden pole. And he had a chance to live if he would have just recanted what he said he believed about Jesus. What about Matthew, the gospel writer? He was preaching the gospel in an old city in Ethiopia, Nadaba, and an angry mob surrounded him because he would not recant. And somebody took a ready-made halberd, which is a long shaft and spikes, and thrust it into his side until he died. James, at the age of 94, was struck in the head with a fuller's club. And then you have Mark, who wrote this gospel. They literally dragged him to death in the streets of Alexandria because he would not recant. He would not leave Jesus, even if it cost him everything, his very life. And the early church fathers write, and yet, notwithstanding all these continual persecutions and horrible punishments, the church daily increased, deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and watered plentifully with the blood of the saints. Now, in Mark 14, Jesus is asking the disciples who they really are, but I have some good news for you. Stay with me. Some really good news because there's another character in the story and I think it's fantastic the way Mark decides to juxtaposition these two characters together. If you don't know it already, you'll find out next time just who that extra character or person is featured in the book of Mark. As we step through Mark chapter 14 and what we can apply from it to our lives today. What she did was spontaneous, conforming to no norm. In fact, the more she expresses her generosity and worship, the more joy she has. 
Join me next time to hear how Pastor Jeff concludes this message on Today with Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.